Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us again Father Peter Stravinskis. He's been with us, I believe, Father Stravinskis, is this the fifth, fourth or fifth podcast you've done with us? Uh, time flies when you have fun. Okay, okay. <laughs> anyway, he, he has been with us before to discuss church matters, uh, the pandemic, and, and other topical issues. Being a Catholic journalist uh, and a priest at the same time was one uh, that you did with us. Your topic today comes from an article in the Catholic World Report called Learning to Sing Catholic. Welcome, Father. Thanks. Good to be with you again, Mark. Okay, so what prompts the essay? Back in September, the Bishop's Committee on Doctrine from the National Office of the Bishops was finished, but not released until about late November, early December. And it dealt with the lyrics of hymns that are used in Catholic worship. Now, this has nothing to do with the quality of the music, Mm -hmm. which could be a tome in itself about how bad the music is in most of these modern hymns, but concern about the lyrics, which very often contain heretical or at least semi-heretical notions. And the document was of interest to me because, for a number of reasons, obviously for pastoral reasons, but Way back in 1999, I sent a letter to Cardinal Francis George, then the Archbishop of Chicago, expressing my concern about texts of hymns in the Pallock uh, Missalettes. For those who are not Catholic, uh, very often in parish churches, they have these seasonal uh, booklets which contain the mass prayers and hymns and so forth. And Pallock, uh, P-A-L-U-C-H, is one of the major producers of those, and they're based in Chicago. And so my concern about the lyrics comes from the fact that in their missalette, they indicate that they have the ecclesiastical approval of the Archbishop of Chicago. Now, we know that with the hundreds of publishers that exist in the Chicago Archdiocese, the Cardinal Archbishop himself is not going to be able to uh, examine every single paragraph that comes out. There are people that are involved with that process. At any rate, the Cardinal wrote back to me explaining that he discovered, (laughs) he had to learn this himself, that according to the then policy of the Bishop's Committee on the Liturgy in Washington, that although the mass prayers were uh, vetted, for doctrinal issues, that 
the hymns were not. I read that in, in your piece, and the thing I says, and the fact that the lyrics to hymns weren't scrutinized, you call that bizarre. How could the overseers have become so lax? As I noted in the article, there are a number of, of possible explanations here. One is they were too lazy to do the work. Two, which is much less attractive an option, is that they knew very well what the lyrics conveyed and uh, were happy to have that conveyed to the people of God. And that would not surprise me, uh, given the theological tilt Palak and, and the things that they've produced over the years. At any rate, the document that emerged from the Bishop's Committee at the end of last year is a welcome uh, sign. You actually call it, quote, a damning critique. It's really that strong? It is. And what surprises me about it is that it is so direct. Very often, ecclesiastical documents particularly from the bishops' conference, try to schmooze things, suggest that this may not be good or this could be a problem. Here, they take aim and name names. They, they identify particular hymns, and they say by, this is, is by no means exclusive list. <laughs> they name hymns that have conveyed uh, heresy, especially in regard to the nature of the Eucharist or the relations among the persons in the Blessed Trinity, uh, the nature of the church. Uh, so all of these are highly neuralgic issues. And if people have been singing heresy for decades now, it's no surprise, for example, in regard to the doctrine of the Eucharist to discover that two-thirds of people who go to Mass every Sunday and receive Holy Communion either do not know or do not accept the Church's teaching on the Eucharist, which is that the bread and wine, through the action of the Holy Spirit, become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. We'll get to some of those specific problems with, with the doctrine, but I'm still curious, what's the yardstick of truth here that should be the one we hold up to the consideration of hymns, and what was the one that they were holding up? The point of the matter is they say clearly they weren't holding up any. They weren't reviewing them, period. Simple. Huh. Okay. Full stop. End of issue. Uh, the standard, obviously, is the immemorial teaching of the Catholic Church, and the sure guide for that is the catechism of the Catholic Church. Okay. It's right there. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's very clear. You see this as actually a very serious problem. You mentioned the potential corruption. I mean, the serious corruption that can set in uh, when you've got church doctrine uh, distorted by bad songs. And I was reading that. Is there any, any historical example that, that, that you could point to, or anecdotal example? The best example for, for this type of problem comes from uh, the early church, the famous, infamous heretic Arius, who did not accept the divinity of Christ, resulting in his condemnation at the Council of Nicaea in the year 325. But the problem didn't go away with his condemnation uh, because very shrewdly, very cleverly, he invented uh, very appealing, cute uh, ditties for people to sing, enshrining his problematic teachings. So we know there, there is a power 
to, to, to music, having taught high school and run high schools for a number of years, I was always very conscious of the lyrics that the kids were being fed through popular uh, rock music. And I discovered very often that while the kids were singing these things, they weren't even adverting to the meaning. And only when you drew it out, I, I would give the kids an exercise uh, in a moral theology class to take the top 10 rock tunes and find any teachings of Christ in the church that are either ignored or pilloried and so forth. The, you know, the, the most famous was uh, uh, Billy Joel uh, talking about you Catholic girls start, start way too late referring to giving up their virginity. And, and of course, if you can mock something, that makes it even more effective. And if you're adding, if you're adding again, clever little music and, and catchy tunes to it, and that, that gets to one point that you make is, has the church always recognized music as the most important art? The most important art form yeah, it involves so much of a person. I mean, it engages a person at numerous levels. I mean, obviously, the seeing, uh, the singing, the hearing. So you're you're involved immediately with you know three of your senses. The impact that it has on the intellect. It affects your breathing. Sure. Yeah. All of this having been said, uh, many of our problems would not exist if people, starting with bishops and priests, had taken seriously and to heart the admonitions of the Second Vatican Council document on the sacred liturgy, which says Gregorian chant is to have pride of place in Catholic worship. So those tunes, in quotes, huh, and those texts are hallowed by centuries of usage, and uh, they don't have to be vetted. They They've been vetted by immemorial tradition. Yeah. You quote the bishop's document acknowledging an inevitable tension. I mean, a lyricist is something of a poet, and we've got to grant them a little bit of poetic license, a little freedom to bend metaphors in, 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 in some ways, and that makes things a little fuzzy sometimes. Who, I'll, I'll give you the example all my, all my liberal colleagues say. Who's to say who draws the line? Since the church is not a democracy, uh, the magisterium draws the line. And if something, now, we have many translations of traditional Latin hymns into English by various people in, 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 over the centuries. And at times, yes, uh, particularly if you want to take a, a Latin hymn that has rhyming and make it rhyme in English and have the same meter and so forth, that's very difficult to do. And, and so, for example, the, the hymn Adoro Te Devote, there's no English translation of that that is absolutely a faithful literal translation of the Latin. However, all of them that have been in use through the, the history of the church uh, have, in fact, been orthodox. So, you know, playing with a line here or there or inverting a line, that is inevitable. And... and and easily understood. But to take a teaching, and and so, again, going back to Eucharistic heresies, you know, take this bread, drink this wine. 
Well, we do that at a, uh, you know, at a dinner table. That's not what we do in the celebration of the Holy Eucharist. When I distribute Holy Communion, I always distribute it by the means of intinction, which is the procedure by which the priest dips the sacred host into the chalice and places it directly onto the tongue of the recipient. And at a church a number of years ago, uh, a man came up and he said, uh, I just want the bread. And I said, the bakery is next door, <laughs> uh, which happened to be true. And uh, uh, But you see, huh? Yeah. Uh, I just want the bread. You actually do find one fault with the bishop's current document, which is that when it censures a hymn, it only says that these things should, quote, be avoided. You prefer the word banned. Yeah, I mean, if if the text is poisonous, which that's why they're highlighting it, then, you know, you wouldn't say to a parent, avoid giving your child uh, cyanide. <laughs> yeah, no, a child should not be fed cyanide. Um, and, and the other problem with the document is it has no teeth. My experience of of people who have been using and promoting hymns like this, they're going to say, uh-huh, thank you, bye now, and continue on their merry way. So unless and until a bishop enforces this type of thing for his diocese, and unless and until parish priests are more hands-on with it, uh, and hopefully not promoting these heresies themselves, that's not going to go anywhere. Uh, many years ago, when Bishop McShay was the Bishop of Allentown, he had not only a single catechism for all the Catholic schools in the diocese, he had a single hymnal that had to be used in, in every parish with, with no deviations. Then there is an opportunity to have product control. Uh, but if you have you know, 50 different liturgical resources available and no product control over any of it, then None of it is going to go anywhere. What's wrong with the hymn, All Are Welcome? That sounds like such a nice message, Father Stravinsky. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, it sounds nice, but go read it a couple of more lines in, and, and you find it's, it's at, on the surface, just ridiculous, and then it's doctrinally problematic. It doesn't reflect a correct understanding of the nature of the church, and and when we talk about people being welcome, it, this is not a sociological statement. People are welcome, and among other things, they're welcome to repent of their sins. Well, I, I have to I I have to quote you. You do a couple of lines from "All Are Welcome." Let us build a house where love is found in water, wine, and wheat. A banquet hall on holy ground where peace and justice meet. Your comment is, after gagging, theological reality hits, as the document notes. And the document proceeds to, to, take, that, to take that apart. But this is, this is what we need, right? Let's draw the line. Let's be precise. Let's be exact about what, what the doctrine is. I mean, it, it takes me back. I, you know, my, my son loved you know, the sound of music. Everyone loved the sound of music. And did anyone register how odd it is for a nun to be telling the, the, young, the young woman, 
climb every mountain, ford every stream, follow every rainbow till you find your dream? In that context, that's under, I mean, that's understandable. She's, you know, she's told Maria that she doesn't have a vocation to be a nun, and it doesn't mean it's the end of her life. Uh, and so, you know, and that's not being used in the sacred liturgy either. I just kept translating that in, in, into, into you know, words that my students hear all the time. Find your passion and follow it, no matter what it is. Oh, yeah. I said, yeah, yeah. So, well, look, how is, let, let, me, let me move on. How is Trinitarian doctrine distorted by some recent hymns? Sometimes you find the avoidance, or actually the... Uh, exact uh, elimination of the title of father for the first person of the Trinity or the relations between father and son not being properly expressed. In fact, sometimes uh, good old Arius comes back to haunt us 18 centuries uh, later so that we're talking about, you know, Jesus being the favored one of the father or, and, or God being referred to, only by titles that reflect uh, function rather than essence. Uh, there, there were have been situations where baptisms were uh, administered in certain places uh, where the the priest or deacon said, "I baptize you in the name of the Creator, Redeemer, and Sanctifier," to avoid the so-called sexist language of father and son and then even positing that the spirit is feminine. And uh, what's the problem? Well, the essence of God is not functionality. Huh? It's, it, it's relational, and so it's how the first per person and the second person are related, and the two of them, how they are related to the third. Now, can we call God creator? Of course. Can we call Jesus redeemer? Certainly. But when those are the exclusive titles used, then one loses uh, the very essence of the doctrine, which, as I say, is relations among the persons of the Trinity. How do the hymns, these are some of the issues that you, you detail, how do the hymns distort divine transcendence? By making God a buddy. There's a whole tendency uh, over the past 50 years of uh, eliminating transcendence. So, you know, God the Almighty, God the Judge, these are concepts that are supposedly unappealing to, to modern man. And yet, they're at the very heart of biblical religion. You know, when Moses asks for God's name, essentially God gives him a riddle. <laughs> I am who am. And that's probably a polite, divine way of saying, none of your business. <laughs> or, you know, take the sandals off your feet, the ground you're standing on is holy. So that, uh, I mean, the great mystery of the incarnation is precisely the, the divine condescension, huh? that from his time in eternity, this eternal word takes on flesh, descends, takes on a human nature, which is a, an abasement of the divinity to do that. But if he's just one of the boys, and can we call God Jesus our brother? Yes, that's true. That's part of the divine condescension in the incarnation. 
However, that can't be used exclusively. That gives a distorted understanding of who he is then. He, he is also you know, the redeemer, the word, the eternal word, the judge, who, the one who will judge us at the end of time. These concepts can't be shunted, uh, put aside. Huh? We, we have a, and we have a parallel reduction in the understanding of the church as, as, the, as the document puts it, a human construction. Yeah, well, you know, for example, the hymn that says, you know, let us build a church, a new church. Huh? Well, we don't build the church. <laughs> the church was built by Jesus Christ. And, you know, we find in the Gospels that he says, on this rock, I will build my church, the rock of Peter. Huh? But it's Jesus who built the church. And the church is his bride and the church is our mother. The institution of the church is something that we receive not something that we create. And there's no such thing as a new church. The church is the one church through time and into eternity. And so uh, if we talk about we can build a new church, then that not so subtly uh, suggests what? That, yeah, yeah. The old, the, and the old church was uh, deficient uh, for, for that 2,000-year-old thing was uh, not good enough. And we see that there certainly are people who have that precise mentality. And it's particularly helpful for them uh, when they want to eschew uh, particularly the church's moral teachings. So whether that's you know, contraception or abortion, divorce and remarriage, same-sex activity, any of these things, well, that belongs to another church. Uh, we've got a new and better church on the horizon. How do hymns misconstrue the Jews? This is puzzling to me because one would think that liberals, in quotes, huh, would want to have a, a very nuanced uh, appreciation of the chosen people. And the Jews of today are still the chosen people. St. Paul makes that very, very clear. But there's this tendency to conflate Jews with Pharisees, for example. And the Pharisees, in my judgment, have been given a very bad rap historically. And in fact, Pope Francis has been corrected publicly by various theologians and rabbis about his constant harping on how bad the Pharisees were. In point of fact, there would have been no Judaism left at our Lord's time if it hadn't been for the Pharisees. It was a lay reform movement created to counter the corruption of the temple priesthood. And we find it, I always find it interesting that, you know, Jesus spent so much time castigating the Pharisees, but never says a word against the Sadducees, really. Huh? And why? Well, because doctrinally, the Pharisees were correct. Everything they taught about angels and the afterlife and prayers for the dead and, and, and all of the rest of these things, all of those are doctrines that Jesus held and taught. And the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead and, and they only the first five books of the Bible and so forth. Jesus doesn't waste his time on the Sadducees because they're just wrong, period. The Pharisees are right, but their practice is wrong. And so, again, you've got this strange way of, of putting 
uh, everything into that one basket. And the other is the uh, the frequent use in some of these uh, contemporary hymns uh, calling God Yahweh. Well, let's remember that's the unspeakable name of God. And in traditional Judaism, uh, in, in temple Judaism, that name was spoken only once a year by the high priest in the Holy of Holies on the Feast of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And so for us, casually to throw that around suggests an unawareness of the ineffability of the word, and also it bespeaks a certain insensitivity toward, uh, toward Jews, who, Orthodox Jews, will not say that name. If they're reading scripture in the synagogue, and the word Yahweh comes up, they do one of two things, either pause in silence for a moment, and then go on with the reading, or substitute another name. So Elohim, we have to have that same kind of sensitivity. And then a number of years ago, Cardinal Lorenze, when he was still prefect of the Congregation for Divine Worship in Rome, uh, sent a memorandum out saying that in Catholic hymnody, that name should not be used. And yet you have a bunch of these uh, hymns from the 70s and the 80s bantering that around very frequently. Hmm. Uh, last question. You call that popular song Amazing Grace the absolute worst. Why is that? <laughs> uh, you'll get lots of ne negative uh, mail about this, but it refers to the human person as a wretch, and particularly uh, the human person here is a Christian. The human person is not a wretch. The human person is the peak of God's creative work. In the book of Genesis, after each day of creation, we're told God looked at it and saw that it was good. And after the creation of man, he looked at it and saw that it was very good. Now, to be sure, after the sin of our first parents, our nature is corrupted, but it is not corrupt. And the fact that it's uh, corrupt is a teaching of Martin Luther, in which he refers to the human race as a massa damnata, a whole condemned mass, or even the Christian as a dunghill uh, with snow over covering it, the, the, the snow of God's uh, redemptive activity on our behalf. Uh, but that's not the teaching of the New Testament, and it's not the teaching of the church. And so to refer to the Christian as a wretch, we may do some wretched things, but in our essence, we are, are good. We're uh, tainted by concupiscence, that the proclivity toward bad things. So St. Paul would say, the good that I do, I find difficult, and the evil I want to avoid, I find easy. Uh, that's, that's concupiscence. But it doesn't make a person evil, all right? And it's ironic that, again, one would think that moving in the direction of liberality one wouldn't want to think about the human person as a wretch. But yet this song is now, you know, de rigueur in, in thousands of parishes. You know, people, Catholics are singing it. Yeah. The article is Learning to Sing Catholic. It's in the Catholic World Report. Father Peter Stravinskis, thank you for joining us. My pleasure.
And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.